Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Streams of Winter. Livestream 21. John Connington. Hello there and welcome to The Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks to you all for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. And I want to welcome everyone coming here from Joe Magician's regular two o'clock live stream. Today we'll be talking about a character who was only a POV as late as A Dance with Dragons, but is now a crucial part of Aegon's invasion. It's John Coddington, everyone. In Dance, we follow John across Essos, dressed up as Griff the fake father of young Grith, who is revealed to be, supposedly, Prince Aegon Targaryen. How did Jon's background as hang, Hand of the King during Robert's Rebellion shape events and lead to his current position? How will Jon be received in Westeros as an exile-turned-invader? And how will contracting grayscale affect him in the upcoming novel? These are, of course, huge questions and so to help me answer, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here and welcome. Also, I want to welcome uh, people that might be coming over from the Girls Gone Canon patrons brunch as well. See a few of you in the chat, too. So thanks, everyone, for being here. And thank you very especially to our special guest for being here. Welcome, Matt from Davos Fingers. Hello, guys. How are you? It's so good to be here. I'm so excited. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on to talk about, you know, grumpy old Uncle John Connington and what uh, what 1980s power ballads he's going to put on his uh, Love Rhaegar playlist. This will be a good time. Yeah, so it'll be about 45, 50 minutes of that and maybe maybe 20 minutes of other content. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we look forward to uh, this entire conversation about John Connington. So uh, why don't we uh, pass it back over to you, Yoke Boy, and get us started. Okay, let's begin. So why don't we start with some backstory in order to get a feel for John Connington as a character. John served as Ares's hand during Robert's Rebellion. Why was he chosen and what can be said about his job performance as the Hand. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, you know, I'm very interested in the way this character is set up 
more or less establishing our expectations of him very early on, giving us the tools that we need to identify him when we eventually meet him in A Dance with Dragons as an undercover operative. He's first mentioned by Barristan, also undercover as Arstan in A Storm of Swords, as one of Rhaegar's friends, someone who is very dear to him, dear to him being the prince. And in the same book, we first hear about the Battle of the Bells when Arya visits Stony Sept. He's mentioned in passing a few more times, but then in A Feast for Crows, it's Jamie Lannister who really gives us the lowdown. I have a quote here. It says, John Connington has been, had been Prince Rhaegar's friend when Meriwether failed so dismally to contain Robert's rebellion and Prince Rhaegar could not be found. Ares had turned to the next best thing and raised Connington to the handship. But the Mad King was always chopping off his hands. He had chopped Lord John after the Battle of the Bells, stripping him of honors, lands, and wealth, and packing him off across the sea to die in exile, where he soon drank himself to death. So I think that quote really speaks volumes about the uh, why uh, John Connington was chosen. Ares really wanted his son to replace Orton Merriweather as hand, but Rhaegar was MIA, so he had to settle for one of Rhaegar's besties. And the how, is in how did he do as the hand? Well, he lost the Battle of the Bells, which had already been described to us in Arya Five of A Storm of Swords, by Harwin, so from a very pro-Robert Baratheon, pro-Ned Stark point of view. And having lost that battle... Ares had him attainted and exiled, and then he died in disgrace. So as far as job performance, not very well at all. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Uh, we see this a lot in media, right? And like where one film company makes a movie that makes a bunch of money about a superhero team. So the other company makes a film about a different superhero team to try and duplicate the first company's success. Ares was that other company who saw a young character charismatic leader of the rebellion and decided he needed to counter with something of the same. And, you know, not that Ares was the most shrewd judge of character, especially when it came to his hands, but John seemed to fit the bill. Um, even if he was second choice to Rhaegar, you know, Kevin Lannister described him as able and energetic with obvious skill at arms and a burning desire to prove himself. But when the desire to prove yourself guys, especially for personal glory, gets ahead of your overall objective, that's when mistakes happen. In hockey, we call this gripping your stick too tightly. I got my Ducks jersey on everybody. But when you're gripping that stick too tightly, you get so wound up and not failing that you end up not winning and you make mistakes. And for John, who's also described as proud and headstrong and arrogant by Kevin, and also too young, too bold, and too eager for glory by Tywin, he, uh, he lost it all at Stony Sept, as he admits in his arrogance. And just like in a video game, my friends, even if you kill all the minions and collect all the coins, it doesn't matter if you don't kill the final stage boss. And it's the same thing with John. He fought well at the Battle of the Bells, but none of it matters if he doesn't kill that final boss, which is Robert Baratheon. So, Lady Gwen, I agree with you. Job performance. Sorry, pal. Thanks for that grounding in John Connington's character, guys, and what's gone on in his history. So 
John is a character who feels he has failed in his past and carries this burden with him at all times like a heavy weight around his neck. So how do these failures from the past inform his present arc and story? Lady Gwyn. Well, for this, I thought it would be uh, be fun or fun, or, you know, beneficial, let's say, to start out with a quote from the Lost Lord, because this, again, is a quote that tells a real story. It says, last night he dreamt of Stony Sept again. Alone with sword in hand, he ran from house to house, smashing down doors, racing upstairs, leaping from roof to roof as his ears rang to the sound of distant bells. Deep bronze booms and silver chiming pounded through his skulls, a maddening cacophony of noise that grew ever louder until it seemed as if his head would explode. Seventeen years had come and gone since the Battle of the Bells, yet the sound of bells ringing still tied a knot in his guts. Others might claim that the realm was lost when Prince Rhaegar fell to Robert's warhammer on the trident, but the Battle of the Trident would never have been fought if the griffin had only slain the stag there in Stony Sep. The bells told for all of us that day, for Ares and his queen, for Ilya of Dorne and her little daughter, for every true man and honest woman in the Seven Kingdoms, and for my silver prince. So he thinks about this failure a lot, every time he hears bells, apparently. And then there's that reference to a recurring dream. So uh, Ned Stark is not the only one who's haunted by recurring dreams rooted in Robert's Rebellion. And then when John Connington gets to Westeros, it becomes clear that the, these memories are really informing everything he does. The Griffin Reborn is absolutely full of his bitter thoughts about Stony Sept, regrets about Rhaegar, etc., etc. This guy is out for redemption, but he's not exactly on a redemption arc, as we'll discuss shortly, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I kept thinking about John Donne's famous uh, poem, I guess it was, where he says, Never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. And man, John Connington feels that the ringing of the bells, like Gwen said, triggers that memory of his failure to ring that bell for Robert at the Stony Sept, while also constantly reminding him that, yes, as the stoniness creeps down his fingers, so too are the bells beginning to ring for him. So uh, what I like about this more wizened John Connington that we see in dance is that he readily admits his past mistakes. He says he rose too high, loved too hard dared too much, tried to grasp a star, overreached and fell. Which, you know what, to me is a hell of a cool way to live, but whatever. You know, that star, which I'd originally interpreted when I read it, you know, maybe the first couple times, I interpreted that star as Rhaegar. He was reaching for Rhaegar. But upon, you know, more careful reading, I, I kind of feel like that's John's own celebrity, his own pride, his own glory. He's determined now, though, to put that arrogance behind him. You know, even after that anticlimactic action concluded at Griffin's Roost and Dance, his thoughts of reclaiming his family seat that are really important to him are almost passing. He says, and quick as that, Griffin's Roost was his again, and John Connington was once more a lord. That's it. So he's, he's, he's trying at least to convince himself that uh, he's determined not to focus on himself. He's determined to focus on the son of the man he failed that day as the bells tolled. I failed the father, he thinks, 
even as he looks out over his newly reacquired lands, but I will not fail the son. Um, And as John also says, men would fight for things they felt were theirs, even things they'd gained by theft. And I see kind of a little dig at Robert Baratheon there in that statement. But I also see shades of him and Aegon, even if it wasn't exactly by theft that John gained Aegon. And, you know, I wonder if, you know, going back to that uh, quote, if John will continue to fight for the son in an effort to redeem himself before the specter of the father, or will John's own star once again come to tempt him and maybe get in the way? I don't know. Great points. And as Lady Gwyn and Matt mentioned, there is a lot of regret and contemplation in John's point of view. These feelings drive him forward, and as such, he must feel like he has one more shot to try and make everything all right. It's difficult to say whether he's propelled more by the fear of failure or the hope that he can redeem himself in his own mind. Definitely some of both, I think. When you step back, pinning all his hopes on this long-term mission is quite a desperate thing to do. John seems like he has nothing to lose physically, but everything to lose emotionally. He is driven by backstory, the past, and it completely dominates what he wants out of the future. John is now going down a one-way alley, completely committed to a cause he doesn't fully understand. He's easy to use and manipulate because he's so desperate, and that's a dangerous thing. Perhaps we will view Stannis's The Winds of Winter story in a similar light one day. And another exile, Miles Toyne, who was a captain general of the Golden Company for a time, told John that Tywin would have burned down Stony Step to kill Robert. Given the amount of time Connington spends dwelling on the Battle of the Bells, do you see this commentary as groundwork for future decisions he's going to have to make. What do you think, Matt? Uh, You know, looking upon the skull of bitter steel in the Golden Company's camp, Connington thinks he died defeated and alone, a broken man in an alien land. And he's determined to not share that same fate. He says, when I return to Westeros, it will not be as a skull atop a pole. With this comes the memory of the words that Miles Toyne uttered, another captain general, as John attempted to justify his actions at the Battle of the Bells. Remember, John said, Tywin Lannister himself could have done no more. And no, as uh, Yoke Boy just pointed out, Miles replied, Lloyd, T- Lord, Lloyd Tywin, I like that. We're going to start calling him Lloyd Tywin, would not have bother- bothered with a search. He would have burned that town and every living creature in it. Men and boys, babes at the breast, noble knights and holy septons, rats and rebels, he would have burned them all. And when the fires guttered out and only ash and cinders remained, he would have sent his men in to find the bones of Robert Baratheon. You know, John, he recognizes the truth in those words. Yeah, Tywin probably would have done that. But he admits that he wanted the glory of slaying Robert in single combat. And he did not want the name of Butcher. You know, while he acknowledges Tywin's way would have worked, although it's not very sportsmanlike, in the words of Princess Bride, we see hints in his POV indicating that he's still, to this day, not willing to play the butcher. He said, 
We want to win the Stormlands, and we won't do that with slaughter. He says that to the Golden Company as he instructs them to very carefully search every nook and cranny of Griffin's Roost. So he did learn one lesson there. Uh, He quietly rejoiced in another instance that Red Ronnet was not at Griffin's Roost, as he did not relish the notion of celebrating his return by killing one of his own kin. So again, didn't want to be the butcher. And when Ronnet's son, Ronald Storm, publicly declares, my father's going to kill you, John simply sent him back to his cell. Uh, I can see all of these moments as moments where Tywin may have coldly dealt, dealt out death in his own unique way. And uh, while John, again, acknowledges the effectiveness of this heartless brutality, he feels he's found a better way. He says, let men earn your trust with leal service, he says to Aegon. But when they do, be generous and open-hearted. And, you know, we'll see if this less severe approach to uh, achieving his ends will prove as effective as Tywin's methods. Well, I definitely agree that in an ideal world, Connington isn't going to become a new Tywin Lannister. He doesn't want to be that person. It goes against his basic concept of honor and yet there's this line that comes after the one you cited about robert and rhaegar that gives me pause i failed the father he said but i will not fail the son you mentioned that one earlier uh i think going forward it remains to be seen how far john connington will go to avoid that second failure will he give up all of his ideals and and his honor once again in order to succeed This strikes me as one of those human heart and conflict with itself moments that has the potential to lead us to a very dark place. When John Connington reunites with his compatriots uh, from the Golden Company in Volon Theris, we see that he finds a message in Bittersteel's skull. The exiled warlord had failed again and again and had to leave it to posterity to achieve his goals. Never did make it home. He came home, he failed, he got driven away and ended up as a, you know, with his, as just a golden skull in exile still. As Matt mentioned, he does think when I return to Westeros, it will not be as a skull atop a pole. He's simply not willing to accept that outcome for himself. And I fear that the repetition of absolutes, I will not fail the sun and it will not be a skull atop a pole combined with the amount of time he spends internally reviewing those errors that he made during Robert's rebellion might be leading up to a moment where he is forced to choose something that represents an abdication of all the values that he holds, the the things that he speaks out loud and swears he will never do. Mm. Um, You know, does he have to about face and really go against all of that in order to achieve those goals. As you said, Lady Gwyn, this is the human heart in conflict with itself. It's interesting that we seem to touch upon that notion in pretty much every character character study that we've done in these streams. At the outset of the Aegon plot, Varys insisted that Jon pretend to be dead. As patron Eric F. points out, John Con is bitter towards Varys and Illyrio about the cover story. So why does Varys insist on this condition and what does that do for their cause, Lady Gwyn? 
In The Lost Lord, when he reunites with the Golden Company, John Connington recalls, so far as most of them were concerned, Connington had drunk himself to death in Liss after being driven from the company in disgrace for stealing from the war chest. And Varys, insisting it was necessary, saying, we want no songs about the gallant exile, the eunuch had tittered in that mincing voice of his, those who die heroic deaths are long remembered, thieves and drunks and cravens soon forgotten. So Connington is consigned to oblivion, which leaves him free to run this clandestine operation of raising the boy Aegon in relative peace. And had he been remembered as uh, Miles Toyne's rising star of a second in command and then just poof, disappeared, you know, questions would have been asked. So a dishonored drunkard, a uh, thief to boot is someone who's best forgotten. So that's, you know, basically what that does for the cause is give them someone who's completely anonymous <laughs> to run their operation. Yeah, it gives them free reign to just run around, right? And even even bears get songs before drunkards and thieves in Westeros. So uh, as you'd expect from someone as well-networked as Varys, we have some evidence that Varys's tale, as LG pointed out, it worked in Jamie 3, I think Lady Gwen, you might have already read this quote or at least referred to it, but he says uh, that John was stripped of his honors, lands, and wealth and packed off across the sea to die in exile, where he soon drank himself to death. And then in the Winds Ariane 1 chapter, Damon Sand says he's dead. He died in the disputed lands of drink, I've heard it said. So the tale is working, and that allows John to move freely about Essos. Yes, it does. Gives him freedom. And for me, John Connington's return from the grave is really an essential part of this plan. Connington is the griffin reborn for a reason. Selling Aegon as authentic to everyone in Westeros is such an important part of Varys and Illyrio's scheme. No doubt there will be propaganda campaigns of some sort between Aegon's camp and his opponents on this issue. But one trick up Varys and Illyrio's sleeve is John Connington. When word spreads that the long-dead John Connington is back and never truly died, it's then going to be a whole lot easier to sell the concept of Aegon being alive too. No one is going to be able to doubt that Connington is Connington. And so the questions to Aegon's authenticity might get a whole lot easier. If Connington is alive and well, then it becomes less incredible to onlookers that Aegon is too. And to further the question on the same theme, I was going to ask, what impact does this have on John Connington personally that he has to play this dishonourable role, Lady Gwyn? Oh, gosh, he hates it. It says that the shame of it still stuck in his craw, and it's clear that he still bears a huge amount of resentment towards Varys for insisting on this part of the plan, so much so that he has this sort of chilling thought in The Lost Lord. What does a eunuch know of a man's honor? Let me live long enough to see the boy sit the Iron Throne, and Varys will pay for that slight and so much more. Then we'll see who's soon forgotten. I mean, just ominous enough to raise a large question mark about Varys' future and also about the so much more. I just, I don't know what that's all about, uh, but obviously John Connington wants to make Varys pay for 
many things. So we'll see about that. To add some further characterization in Ariane 1, when she asks uh, Damon Sand to tell her about John Connington, and he says something that, that both explains the resentment and actually might lend some doubt to the cover story when you think about it. He says that Connington was proud for a certainty, even arrogant, a faithful friend to Rhaegar, but prickly with others. Robert was his liege, but I've heard it said that Connington chafed at serving such a lord. So John is a proud man, which is why accepting the dishonor was so hard for him. But note that one of the things he apparently despised about Robert Baratheon was his excessive drinking and womenizing. So for people who knew him well, unlike most of the people who have opinions about him so far, it's going to be really hard to, rec to reconcile that man with the one who stole gold from his companions and then died of drink in, in disgrace, in exile. Oh, man, that's a great point about Robert. He really did. John really did despise Robert for a lot of things. And those qualities were certainly some of them. So, uh, you know, for all his talk of not failing Rhaegar's son, as we've said, there's certainly a fair amount of hubris kicking around inside of John Kahn. Uh, he's still very much motivated to satisfy. So as you mentioned about Varys, I, I wonder if, you know, he had the opportunity and he gets to that moment where he could make Varys pay for the, his slights against him, if he'd actually do it, you know? <laughs> I hate to say it, but empty threats are sometimes the name of John Connington's game. I, I picked those up a lot as I read through Tyrion's chapters with John Connington. He's kind of just a grumpy guy in many ways, and part of me wonders if he'd actually go through with it, uh, or if he does kind of have this... I don't know if it's a grudging respect for Varys. He recognizes that he can't do what he's set out to do with Aegon without Varys's help. But at the same time, he knows who Varys is. He knows that Varys is pulling strings. He knows all of that's happening. He knows there's things that he doesn't know that Varys is doing. And that's just got to ugh, just, just really drive that hubris nuts uh, for John Connington. Yeah, fully agreed. As I said last time, he's in a sort of desperate position and he has to sort of sell himself out in some ways to try and achieve his biggest goals. So I want, I want to talk about John and Aegon and their relationship because as Aegon's foster father, John has spent years caring for the boy and raising him and teaching him ostensibly with a single purpose in mind. That purpose is quite personal to John. So what does the boy really mean to him, Lady Gwyn? Well, initially, I think it's hard, kind of hard to tell because we see from Tyrion's point of view and in Connington appears to be quite fierce in his devotion to the boy's safety and to his future. But once we gain his own point of view, it really appears to me that Connington views Aegon as an extension of Rhaegar and uh, maybe, you know, in a more selfish way his own second chance. He spends 12 years raising the child in secret, not with the goal of keeping him safe per se, but with the intention of one day thrusting him into the center of political intrigue and likely grave danger, ostensibly to retrieve the boy's birthright. So it's no surprise that we might question his priorities if we contrast Lord Connington with the Ned, 
who ironically or not also raised a son of Rhaegar's in secret. Uh, Ned's priorities would seem to be the polar opposite of John Connington's. He, his goal is to keep the child safe at any cost, including the cost of his own marriage, protect him from being used as a pawn in the Game of Thrones, and shield him from the dangerous knowledge of his birthright, which contrasts strongly with Aegon's obvious knowledge of who he is and what his, his rights and entitlements are. So I think the contrast between these two father-son pairs is going to become more marked as the story continues to unfold. And like I mentioned uh, in the last stream with regard to Danny's experience with Aegon impacting her eventual reaction to John and John's secret birth, I do think that there is a very strong narrative purpose to having these parallels in the story. Oh, that's so awesome. I had not even made that comparison to John and Eddard before you brought it up. Lady Gwen's super cool. Very cool. There's an author out there, Josh Kaufman. Uh, he's kind of a business author, stuff I don't normally read, but I did for work once. And he speaks of five core drives that influence human behavior. And one of them is the drive to bond. He calls it the desire to be loved and feel valued in our relationship with others. Um, and I pin this driver squarely upon John's chest with his obvious desire to be loved and feel valued in his relationship with Rhaegar. So much of what he does is with that intent of proving he's worthy of his prince. Even with Aegon, the desire remains not so much to keep him safe nor protect him, as we pointed out Ned does with Jon, but to bind himself to Rhaegar's memory. Jon wants to be written of in the histories not as the man whose failure led to Rhaegar's death, but as the man whose redemption put Rhaegar's son on the throne. But uh, here's the thing. John lists as his goals. He wants to see Griffin's Roost again. He wants to end the Usurper's line for good and all. And then he wants to put Rhaegar's son upon the Iron Throne. But was the Iron Throne Rhaegar's goal for his son? I don't know. If not, John's Connington, or John Connington's drive to bond with his prince may be tainted yet again by his own pride and what he thinks is best for Aegon. And uh, we might get to more of that later. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Yeah, I think we will have more on that one. And on the subject of Rhaegar, in 2011, George confirmed that one of the POV characters is confirmed to be gay. Here's the question. Is a certain POV character in A Dance with Dragons gay? And he answered, I can't answer without spoiling, but if you're talking about what I think you're talking about, then yes. So really it's the general consensus of the fandom that this character in question is John Connington. So what evidence is there in the text that John is gay, Lady Gwyn? Well, you know, when you think about it, if George hadn't ever made that comment, if no one, if he hadn't been asked that question and answered in that particular way, I think that a lot of the evidence, such as it is, might be taken as extremely vague because there does exist a brotherhood of soldiers, a kind of closeness between brothers in arms that could explain some of the description of his fondness for both Raycar and Miles <laughs> Toyne. If you look at it in a certain way, I mean, it could just be this overblown, you know, my brother sort of thing. But <laughs> it's like me and Scad. Exactly. You guys love each other. I know you talk, think about Scad's hair blowing in the breeze frequently. So Often. Uh, <laughs> Often. <laughs> However, it is pointed out that he, John Connington, never married and never had women on the side. So curious. And then his scorn for Elia almost jumps off the page. I mean, he is jealous of her. He loathes her. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if it's, quite to the level of uh, misogyny. I, I kind of feel like it, it is a bit, although we only have very limited evidence of that, but you know, there it is. So taken all together, Connington's sexuality might not be as obvious as Renly's and Loris's, but he's also a very different person. He's, he's proud, he's stirred, and he's probably very private. I think altogether that's this is our evidence plus when we look at george's comment there's the fact that if we play the process of elimination game the only real candidate for who this pov could be yeah, because we're talking about pov in a dance with dragons and so it's likely someone that it is newly introduced in in around this time feast or dance uh Connington and ario hota are pretty much who it boils down to and uh, there's not one single hint of sexuality about Harry Hota. So I think we're kind of left with, with John Connington is the answer. And especially since George made this comment in the context of a wink, wink kind of conversation, if you're talking about what I think you're talking about, I think it seems pretty obvious that it's someone who was written in a certain way that, you know, we could arrive at this conclusion if, if we look at it through this lens. Yeah, for sure. You know, after uh, Griffin's roost is taken. John excuses himself from his conversation with Harry Strickland, and he says he's got to pay his respects to his father's bones in the Sept. Yet, John Connington did not go to the Sept. Instead, he immediately makes his way to the battlements, where he'd walked a hundred times with his father, and once with Rhaegar. And his thoughts, of, co of course, are only on that once. Um, reading the text, I was struck by George's framing of the two-word phrase, only once. He frames it in parentheses, and he punctuates it with an exclamation point. And I don't know, I just found that such an oddity in George's writing style. It very much felt like something like you'd see uh, from an adolescent narrator in a high school dramedy m movie, you know? Only once. Um, 
and this is right after that he goes on to think Elio was never worthy of Rhaegar. While at the same time, he recalls how much he wanted to prove himself worthy of Rhaegar's love. Uh, and you know, all of us have asked, were those feelings reciprocated by Rhaegar? I lean towards no, but without his POV, we may never know. And it doesn't really matter. John's devotion to the idea of him and Rhaegar, that desire to bond, even posthumously, informs every single decision he makes. And if John were more of a romantic, he'd whip out his acoustic guitar and he would play that cover of Everything I Do, I Do It For You while gazing at a crumpled, worn picture of his Prince Rhaegar, for sure. I'm just going to take a minute while I think about that. Okay. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> that image. Um, I want to add something because uh, our friend and patron, Aegon VI, made a comment today on Discord that I thought was really, uh, it was really great comment and is a, uh, it's a kind of a good breakdown of the LGBTQ characters that we get in A Song of Ice and Fire. He mentioned that John Connington offers a very different perspective of queer characters so that, than any we've seen in the story so far. He says, you know, he's he's kept his, spent his life keeping his own secret without breaking, which, you know, heavily influences the man who turns out to be, uh, might have negatively impacted his perspective and personality to not let anyone in on his true self for his entire life. But that's not without merit in the context of Westerosi society. Uh, Aegon points out that when we hear of other LGBTQ characters in A Song of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood, their queerness acts as a mark against them in in the public eye. You've got this shining knight, Loras, who's you know one of the best uh, turning knights out there, who's looked upon as debauched somehow. And uh, the politically popular king, Renly, is deemed as weak. Uh, you have powerful Queen Reyna Targaryen, the queen in the West, ultimately termed a witch, and all of her favorites are her coven. Oberyn Martell is a deviant. I mean, anyone who does not fit into the very strict boundaries of um, gender and sexual identity in Westeros are branded as others and really marginalized. So, you know, John Connington has has managed to keep himself apart from from that judgment people really don't know what to think about him he's exiled dead or drunk <laughs> who knows um so you know he's really managed to um accomplish keeping the secret from the culture that he lives in and not kind of taking the hints of other queer characters uh, at least not based on on that so thank you Aegon, for giving us that perspective because i thought it was good to to mention you know, other characters that George has, has shown us and contrast John with them because he's yeah, definitely fantastic. something different. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. Thanks, Aegon, for those comparisons and to get us thinking in those terms. And in A Dance with Dragons, Aegon named Rolly Duckfield to his Kingsguard against Connington's wishes, who would rather see the position reserved for great warriors and the sons of valuable lords and then insists, Aegon insists on leading the charge at Storm's End himself. Is this indicative of a growing tension between foster father and son? And where could this road lead us? Matt? 
You know, I think John's starting to get back what he invested in young Griff. He's getting a confident, charismatic leader, capable of concocting ambitious plans and inspiring men to follow him. Uh, Aegon declaring that he will lead the attack on Storm's End. That's going to resonate loudly in the ears of a golden company who've been under the leadership of the cautious, lead from behind, hairy, great for toes, Strickland. Uh, the cause for worry, however, stems from that same confidence Aegon's already exhibiting, and we've seen it. Uh, if he experiences a run of success and he starts to believe he can do it all on his own, you have to wonder if John's influence will continue to lessen on him. It's it's kind of like an Anakin-Obi-Wan thing, where Anakin started to feel he was so powerful that it overrode the need for Obi-Wan's experience and wisdom. And we all know that you always listen to Obi-Wan, guys. Um, you know, and, and you have to wonder if, much like Anakin... Uh, He'll he'll cast John aside. Um, I don't I don't know if they'll have a fight in front of a lava river or anything like that. But you know anything could happen. But you know at the same time it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to think about after all John has invested at the expense of his own reputation. Um, and but it could also be kind of dangerous. Remember how Aegon fared when left to his own devices against Tyrion in their Savas game. Um, we started to see of an Aegon, a side of Aegon we might not have liked as much. Yeah, I, I'll never forget that part, the Savas game that went horribly wrong in the end. Aegon. So that game of Savas exemplified how easily manipulated Aegon can be. And now he certainly has a lot of confidence, but... Remember that, as we've discussed previously, he was sort of raised in this vacuum. And so we can ask ourselves if he has earned the right to be so confident and bold. He's never really been tested. And suddenly here he is playing at being a leader. It does feel like he's playing almost, you know, this could and very probably will lead to extra tensions with his foster father. And there might be more than a hint of the mentor-stroke-pupil dynamic Matt touched upon with his answer. In these types of stories, the mentor figure is often challenged by the pupil, leading inevitably to some form of conflict. I think it's important on a story level for Aegon to become a proactive character who can change the course of proceedings. It adds danger and unpredictability to John Connington's story for one thing and serve to show us that the best laid plans can ultimately come down to impulsive and immediate decisions. So Aegon could be difficult to manage for John Connington, who I think wants a high amount of control over the whole invasion. As Matt said, this could lead to John becoming isolated somewhere down the line. John Connington's story is one of loneliness, I think. So it wouldn't surprise me if in this invasion, at some point, less is required of John and he feels somewhat alienated at the least. Yeah, I think uh, you guys make excellent points and say what you will. That game of Savas led to Tyrion's conclusion that this kid might just be a Targaryen after all. So uh, he's definitely acting in character there. So whether he's uh, Aegon, uh, Rhaegar's son or not, yeah, he's pretty much shown as Targaryen stripes. So 
having said that, I want to add that in that dynamic between Aegon and John Connington that's currently playing out, I'm reminded strongly of the young Jaehaerys I asserting himself to his mother, Alyssa Valerian, and her husband, Rogar Baratheon, his regent and hand, respectively, saying, basically, thanks for everything, guys, but I'll take it from here. <laughs> I got this. Go back to wherever we came from. Okay. And there's a potential additional parallel that could come into play in the choice of spouse. Remember that Jaehaerys first asserted himself in the matter of who he would marry. He married his sister, Alysanne, and not someone of his guardian's choosing. And that's a discussion that I think leads us nicely into our uh, next question. Your point. Yes, it does. Here we go. In the Winds of Winter, Ariane sample chapters, the Dornish princess is heading to meet Aegon. From a writing standpoint, there are reasons a Dornish-Aegon alliance makes sense, which we've covered previously. So, will Aegon marry Ariane? And what would Connington's reaction be if Aegon went ahead and made this huge critical decision of his own volition. Matt? Yeah, uh, John's already made his feelings clear on this matter of marriage. He tells Halden Halfmaester, Daenerys Targaryen may yet come home one day. Aegon must be free to marry her. He has, however, demonstrated already that his patience has a limited shelf life, and if it comes down to receiving Dorne's aid or not, I gotta believe he'll support the marriage. You know, even if there's some lingering dissonance, uh, remember, it was when Halden originally brought up the marriage to someone not named Danny Idea that John first has his strikingly negative thoughts about Aaliyah Martell, another princess of Dorne who was not worthy of Rhaegar. Um, Doran Martell, for his part, has already played out at one point a scenario where his daughter marries a Targaryen. Hmm. And if he finds out what happens to Quentin, and knowing that his chance to finally strike a killing blow at the Lannisters is coming to pass, we might be able to conclude that he would do it again. And uh, so if you've got Doran on board, and John maybe not feeling great about it, but he's on board too because of potential alliances and everything, I think he could support it. Um, you know, as a, a silly aside, we recently recorded an episode with our friend Marcus Pitts. He's at Marcus14 on Twitter. Uh, he's a good friend, longtime member of the fandom over in the UK. Uh, and the episode came out to our patrons yesterday. It will come out to everybody else on Monday. So this may be a spoiler for some of you, but that's okay. I don't mind. Um, when we were talking with, about, with him about this on the air, he pointed out how if him at 16 years old had the attention of an older woman, not too much older though, of Ariane's beauty and charms, he would have lasted all of like five seconds before falling completely under her spell. And seeing Ariane play her game so far on the likes of stalwarts like Ares Oakheart, you know, that could be leading us to a similar situation between her and Aegon. Yeah, great points. I agree with Matt. We've previously discussed this potential setup in terms of adding together Aegon's growing confidence mixed with Ariane's seductive skills. We concluded that they may very well end up in bed together or in the bone way, as Brendan Beefish put it. Such an alliance could be part of the groundwork for potential conflict with Daenerys. And I have to say, 
that this could devastate Connington, giving, given what Matt w- said about John counting on Danny becoming an ally one day. This could be the decision that sparks a great tragedy for Connington. It puts him very much at odds with the with the boy he's supposed to be championing, and might he might become more solitary following a potential marriage. And if Aegon and Dawn are to provide the immediate conflict in Danny's Westeros invasion story, it could really be the ruin of the man. Connington is a guy full of remorse and regret, and when his time is up, he will no doubt harbour further regrets about Aegon. We just don't know exactly what they are right now. Lady Gwyn. Um, well, we've kind of pointed out that Arianne is already thinking about using her charms on John Connington as she journeys north. She's not sure if they'll work, but she's obviously she's she recognizes that this is a strength of hers, right? She also thinks about Daenerys and her brother Quentin, that uh, young girls dreamed of dashing knights with wicked smiles, not solemn boys who always did their duty. And we've certainly seen the truth of this in her own arc with her obvious attraction to men like Darkstar and even her uncle Oberyn. Aerys Okart might have been an outlier personality-wise, but he did have a dashing white cloak, and her seduction of him was very effective. So given the fact that John Connington is unlikely to be receptive to her in that way, the idea that she'll try to seduce Aegon seems pretty well grounded. And as I mentioned in the last question, the idea that he'll reciprocate is also being established in his rebellious turn with John Connington and in the parallel with Jaehaerys and Alysanne. As far as Connington's reaction goes, I've mentioned previously the timeline and and the Quentin plot. Quentin is lying in Danny's bed dying around the time Arianne arrives at Griffin's Roost. So it could potentially take a long time for news of his death to reach Westeros, during which time Arianne could you know, spend her time convincing John Connington that Daenerys is for her brother. Like, my brother's over there in in Slaver's Bay, and he's going to marry Daenerys. She's not coming back here to marry her boy, Aegon. Uh, You know, and she she could very well put to John Connington that if he wants Dorne and Daenerys, he'd better agree to this proposed union between Arianne and Aegon. Uh, I doubt that anyone in this scenario is going to give too much thought to Danny's reaction to any of this. Uh, she's an unknown quantity for all of them as of yet. So uh, I, I don't doubt that she's not going to look very kindly on all of this, but <laughs> I don't right, think they're right. going to be clued into that yet. Yeah. So glad that you brought up the sort of Quentin aftermath. That's something when you're thinking about Dawn and Aegon's invasion that you can't forget this sort of wave of information that's going to come out of the east and you know how when's that going to hit and how's it going to manifest we'll have to wait and see but it's certainly going to have an effect on something down the line so in a dance with dragons aboard the shy maid Connington is infected with grayscale on his arm an infectious is infectious disease that spreads and eventually turns people to stone. How will contracting grayscale affect John's story? And what does it tell us about his character that he's kept so silent about it? Matt? 
Yeah, those who watch The Office will remember Michael Scott's final episode where he's attempting to say meaningful goodbyes to all of his coworkers. He's got that list that he's just crossing names off. And well, at the same time, he's trying to hide that he's actually leaving. No one knows. So he's running around the office trying to have like these meaningful moments with everybody. He's wondering where Pam is. Why isn't Pam back? And all his coworkers are just like, what is wrong with Michael? Like, why is he acting this way? Uh, there's this urgency that nobody knows about. And John's in a similar situation, albeit with much less comedy and much higher stakes. Uh, he cannot quite explain to those close to him that after spending the last 12 years carefully grooming Aegon for the throne, he's now, quote, tired of prudence, sick of secrets, weary of waiting. Um, and he acknowledges that he still has time, a year, he says, two years, five, some stone men live for ten. Time enough at least to cross the sea to see Griffin's Roost to end this usurper's line for good and all and put Rhaegar's son upon the Iron Throne. We've already read that quote. But he says he does not have enough time for caution. So he's trying to balance this, still be patient, still do things right with still feeling this very much the sense of urgency. And while we've already talked about John and his potentially competing motivations, one, restoring his pride, and two, uh, the desire to bond with Rhaegar, there's no questioning his dogged determination to accomplish both. And here's where I see two sides of it. Um, I worry that throwing caution to the wind for reasons he cannot, cannot explain to his friends is going to alienate him from them and probably lead to mistakes reminiscent of the Battle of the Bells. In other words, if he acts too quickly and too brashly, feeling that urgency, there's going to be some alienation there from you know, comrades that have been used to this slow, measured pace of let's do this right. You know, we've got time. But uh, on the other hand, like Samwise Gamgee carrying Frodo up Mount Doom, I can't help but admire the tragic character of John Connington for enduring, keeping, you know, just keeping on, keeping on, even in the face of certain creeping death. I love these pop culture references, Matt. No one does it better. And I, I agree that this grayscale sets up a race against time and this serves to add tension to proceedings. It could make him behave suspiciously around others and dictate major decisions such as John marrying for the cause. He might also spread the disease to his camp, which could cause huge anxiety as they face battle. There is fan speculation that John could be the grayscale patient zero and be responsible for a wide outbreak. But I'm not sure I'm a believer in this theory. There is a lot of complex story left to tell and many arcs are poised and finely balanced. And we have Aegon invading and then Danny, and then the others... I I th don't think there's that much room for a sort of really wide grayscale outbreak, at least not on the scale that some people are predicting. The fact that Connington is keeping it a secret might be indicative of his new any means necessary mindset that he might have adopted in light of the Battle of the Bells and the comparison with Tywin that we've talked about. Perhaps the grayscale reminds us hey, this guy will do whatever it takes to accomplish his mission. And he wants to oversee the whole mission himself and the invasion. 
Aegon's victory is so important to him, he can't relinquish control, even if it means putting some of his own team in danger. That is how important he sees his own role in the proceedings. Yeah, yeah, you guys make uh, great points about the urgency that this plot adds to John Connington's arc and how his how it might affect his by any means necessary approach and where that comes from. And, and this is also going to color our perspective of his methods. If he's seen to be willfully endangering others so that he can remain at the helm of Aegon's triumphant return, how altruistic are we supposed to believe his motives are? I mean, is he really operating in the best interests of Rhaegar's son at that point? Or is he selfishly focusing on his own redemption at any cost? Can it be both? I'm not sure we really have the ability to answer that yet, if ever, but it's certainly one of those inner conflicts that George R.R. R. Martin wants us to see in the narrative and think about. Yeah, there's that. And I also want to point out that if John Connington lives long enough for Danny to make it to Westeros with Tyrion at her side, as we, I think, all more or less expect will happen, mm. he's uh, made it clear in his thoughts that he fully blames Tyrion for this affliction. Even if this is somewhat unfair, since Tyrion saving Aegon is uh, what prompted John Connington to pull him out of those plague-infested waters... I can certainly see a lot of bitterness in play if this reunion ever comes to pass, especially with Tyrion having apparently escaped unscathed. And uh, now he's got this lousy disease to show for it. Wait, you were in the water and you didn't get it? I just touched the water. <laughs> Great that we're bringing Tyrion into this because he's a, you know, a character I never really thought about John's focused on that but that's a really interesting thought and you know perhaps set up for for later on if Aegon and Danny square off one day so now John Aegon and company are making inroads into the stormlands and beyond we're talking about this potential showdown with Danny but that's a long way off we've got the the winds of winter to to perhaps focus on the current invasion how will Aegon and the golden company be received in Westeros, will Connington be viewed as an exile returning or as a hostile invader? Yeah, John thinks he was not without his own friends here. Some of the older lords will still remember me, and their sons will have heard the stories. And every man of them will know of Rhaegar and his young son, whose head was smashed against a cold stone wall. And if there's any truth to Danny's experience in the House of the Undying, that cloth dragon swaying on poles amidst a cheering crowd could foreshadow a positive reception for Aegon, if indeed that phrase is referring to him, as many of us think. Uh, you know, and much of that cheering crowd could start with a victory at Storm's End. I mean, think about it. The positive PR that could result from a dashing young commander victoriously leading an army of exiles against the most impregnable castle in all of Westeros. I mean, that could be game-changing in swaying public support from a Lannister regime that's already waning. I, I mean, remember, this is a regime that doesn't have Tywin anymore, that now doesn't have the tempering influence of Kevin Lannister. Uh, there's a boy that sits on the Iron Throne and a queen regent who just completed a humiliating walk of shame through the streets of King's Landing. I mean, if there's ever a time to swoop in on a white horse, 
you have to think that it's around right now. Uh, you know, I think about democratic elections and Aegon, and by extension, John too, doesn't have to come in as a savior. He just has to be or appear better than the other guy. Uh, and indeed, while John may be able to muster up some support from his friends, I think there's potentially uh, greater numbers that will start pouring in if Aegon wins and Lords, if Aegon starts winning at least, and Lords want to be on the side of the victor. Yeah, good point. The potential domino effect in the region and in Westeros, if Aegon scores early victories and picks up some prestigious allies, Cersei and co. have hardly been covering themselves in glory through the course of the books recently. It's likely then that Aegon might receive a positive reception in some parts and from certain people. But on the flip side, our friend Uptown GBV points out in our Discord discussion that Westerosi lords might be afraid of the Golden Company's involvement, that as a force they might be primed to take lands, castles and honours that really might make current lords afraid of them. Here's a quote from the Griffin Reborn. Promises of land and promises of gold may suffice for some, but Strickland and his men will expect first claim on the choicest fields and castles, those that were taken from their forebears when they fled into exile. So guys, there will be limits to how persuasive Connington's campaign might be across Westeros, especially given Daenerys might also soon be invading, given there could be a definite fear that the Golden Company have their eyes on castles and lands and titles that the current holders would certainly not want to lose. I think we're already seeing the danger of Aegon's invasion being supported by these landless exiles and soldiers of fortune. Uh, in the Ariane 2 sample chapter, when she visits Mistfall, and meets Lady Mertens, who is a spunky dowager worthy of Olena Martell's stamp of approval. She's held, being held captive in her own home by the Golden Company, who have taken Mistfall in Aegon and John Connington's names. She refers to her jailers as thieves. And when uh, the Golden Company operative Young John Mudd protests that they're just foragers and they're knights. She says, if you two are knights, I'm still a maiden and I'll speak as I please. What will you do? Kill me? <laughs> Love this woman. My girl. Yeah. So Ariane worries about her treatment and uh, Lady Mertens says, you know, that she herself is, is safe. As she actually says, I haven't been raped if that's what you mean, but their serving girls have been less fortunate, married or unmarried these men make no distinction. And once again, John Mudd protests. No one's been doing any rapings. Connington won't have that. We follow orders. Lady Merton's response to this speaks volumes about the dangers of failing to win the hearts and minds of the people of the Stormlands. It says, ah, the same way our small folk were persuaded to give you all of our crops, melons or maidenheads. It's all the same to your sort. If you want it, you take it. Lady Mertens then turns to Arianne. If you should see this Lord Connington, you tell him that I knew his mother and she would be ashamed. 
<laughs> I really hope we get to see Arianne say that. Say that, yeah. John Connington, uh, or better yet, Lady Burton's herself. That, that would actually be better. But Arianne is the messenger chosen. So, you know, the small folks suffer when the High Lords play their games of thrones and all that stuff. But Aegon is supposed to be selling himself as a remedy to that old problem. If Illyrio is to be believed, he's a savior come from across the sea to bind up the wounds of bleeding Westeros. Now, he surely shouldn't then be adding to those wounds, right? So this is a problem that might not have a solution. An army yeah. travels on its stomach and the 10,000 men of the Golden Company uh, have a prodigious appetite in the short term. And that's even before we get to the issues of their expectations of rewards and reinstatement of lands and titles that were lost generations before. So those things are just simply not going to be given up without a fight by their, their current owners. So in my opinion, PR is going to be the major issue for John Connington in the Winds of Winter, and he's going to need every bit of positive press he can get, which might be a part of letting Aegon take a more prominent role. Uh, you know, put the young, good-looking guy out there in front and, and yeah. let everybody cheer for him and, and love him. Uh, you know, and that potential alliance with Arianne and Dorne could also, you know, be seen as part of this kind of positive PR package that they're absolutely going to have to have. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, this is, this is not in my notes, uh, Yolk Boy and Lady Gwen, but as we were just talking about this, I think that might be a reason why you might have Lords kind of flocking quickly to Aegon if he starts to gain momentum be because they want to be the ones that can say, I'm on your side. Like, don't take my lands. I'm, I'm with you, man. Like I've been with you the whole time. And Part of the problem with that, though, is they're not really bought into the cause. They don't, they don't care if Aegon's on the Iron Throne, really, not to the degree that John Connington does. They just want to keep their lands so they could easily be swayed by someone else, Danny or someone else when they come across. There's not going to be, yeah, there's not that conviction to Aegon's cause. So both ways. Yeah, great points. So... Moving on, we've discussed in previous weeks about the issue of Aegon's authenticity. Many fans believe he's an unknowing Blackfire figurehead, or that he is otherwise a fake somehow. But it's interesting to repeat these questions now we are focusing on John, Canning John Connington. And so our patron, May, asks, Will Aegon be revealed as a fake what would this revelation mean for John, John Connington if there was a reveal? So I'll go. I believe that Connington's motivations for seating Aegon on the Iron Throne are so personal to him. Aegon being the child of Rhaegar, who he seems to have fallen in love with perhaps. And after all that transpired from Robert's Rebellion to the Long Exile that it would truly devastate John. In fact, when the stakes are so high, you have to wonder if John would tr try to deny this or ignore any rumours or reveal. He would be crushed to realise Aegon is not Rhaegar's son. He would feel tremendously duped and would either be absolutely furious or broken or probably a mix of the two. 
with all the regret and guilt he's carried over the years, to realise that he's been used in someone else's Game of Thrones, just as he perhaps begins to think he's headed for victory, and even a sense of this absolution that he's seeking would be enormously painful for him. Oh man, yeah, enormously. And I have to think that Aegon will be revealed as a fake, uh, most likely narratively to clear the way for Danny, or more like she's going to clear her own way through him. Uh, but regardless, it breaks my heart to think of what this reveal will do to Aegon. Uh, his underlying sense of entitlement aside, that Savas game with Tyrion, I feel for any halfway decent human being who suddenly discovers that their very identity is a sham. Uh, but this episode isn't about Aegon. So back to John. Yolkboy's right. He'll be crushed to find that that vicarious link he thought he had to his prince these last 12 years was never even there to begin with. Uh, so what will he do? I mean, is he going to go off and just die quietly of grayscale? I don't think so. I think after maybe wallowing for a time, not too long though, remember he's in a hurry. Uh, I think John's initial goals to reclaim his lands, his name, and his honor will still burn within him. He's already got his lands, well, at least some of them, Griffin's Roost at least. As for his name and his honor, well, he has a couple choices. I mean, first, if he finds out in secret that Aegon is a fake, like, I don't know how he would do it, but maybe through some studying or someone, whoops, someone, uh, hit my thing here. Or if someone taps him or something and says, hey, Aegon's, you know, a Blackfire or something. Um, he could still continue his support in trying to keep the secret under wraps and still put Aegon on the Iron Thrones. Kind of a, I'm going to finish what I started attitude. You know, and he's supporting a boy who, even if he knows, is not really Rhaegar's son. John probably still has genuinely true paternal feelings for this kid after all these years and wants something good for him. Uh, and from a more selfish perspective, having his guy or his kid on the throne will no doubt make John's easing back into Westerosi society uh, easier. But, um, you know, if Aegon's true identity is publicly revealed, is put out for everyone to know, John, you know, on one hand, could still go down swinging with him, again, owing to those paternal feelings, or uh, he could throw his support to another claimant like Danny. I don't think he will. But in any case, I think John's dogged pursuit of his goals will result in him not fading away quietly from this story. Yeah, I think when the reveal comes, and I do think it will come, because there are points in both John Connington's and Daenerys's arcs that really depend on them discovering this truth. John is going to have little choice but to double down on Aegon. Uh, if it's like you see, if it's knowledge that's revealed privately, like you said, or you know, it, it's possible that he will actively work to keep his allies in the Golden Company from learning of it, or possibly even go in, you know, into some kind of denial, depending on how few people know about it. If it's a very small group, he could just, you know, denial is a, is a fine response to many crises in life. So <laughs> I, uh, what I don't see him doing ever is publicly disavowing Aegon, even if privately his affection for the kid wanes. I'm reminded of a thought that, he has when Aegon arrives at Griffin's Roost and begins asserting himself. John Connington draws a mental comparison between the boy and Rhaegar. He looks at him and he's thinking about Rhaegar 
this is the hair blowing in the wind thing. His silvery hair was blowing in the wind and his eyes were a deep purple, darker than this boy's. Just this very blunt kind of like, hmm, different. It makes me wonder how many times in the last 12 years these contrasts have come up in his, in his you know, in his subconscious or his conscious. How much has he thought has he given to this? Are we going to see more of these contrasts being made prior to a reveal leading to follow-up thoughts someday along the lines of, no wonder their eyes are dissimilar. I should have known. How could I have been so duped? You know, something like that. I mean, is there's just going to be built up over time. It could be. Uh, but in spite of all this, I think that the focus of his reaction is not going to be on Aegon himself, even if it sort of sours him on the kid a little bit. And it could be Aegon's attitude might, be doing the souring all by itself. But I do think that when he learns the truth about this plot, if it's all plays out the way we expect it will, uh, that his, the, the most of his ire is going to be focused on Varys and Illyrio. He's already angry with Varys for the deception that was required of him. That sort of, I'm going to make him pay thought that we talked about earlier. So imagine his fury when he learns that everything he did, including this, you know, giving up his honor and going and pretending to die in disgrace in exile uh, was done in service to them and their goals and, and not at all in service to his devotion to Rhaegar and Rhaegar's son, as he's always thought. Uh, I think that's going to be a very dangerous place for Varys and Illyrio to be. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. <laughs> and guys, with with our sights set on the future of the Winds of Winter and beyond, we get to our final question of the afternoon. Do we think ultimately that Connington will achieve his goals? And feel free to define or restate what you think those goals are. Given the grayscale, he's probably a dead man walking. And how long do we think he will survive in this game? What do you think, Matt? Yeah, you know, I've brought this quote up a couple times already, and it's not like it's my favorite quote or anything, so I don't know why it kept coming back to it, why I keep coming back to it. But John's goals, as he describes them, are to see Griffin's Roost again, to end the Usurper's line for good and all, and to put Rhaegar's son upon the Iron Throne. We know he's seen Griffin's Roost again. Uh, we'll see if he's able to hold it. But as for ending the Usurper's line, I know I haven't even really considered uh, a potential revenge quest against the Baratheons. I mean, is he going to go after Stannis clear up in the north? Will he attempt to hunt down Robert's bastard children? Uh, does the Usurper's line include Lannisters by association, particularly Marcella and Tommen? Uh, you know, I'm anxious to see how much vengeance remains a priority for him as his campaign continues. Uh, he doesn't seem to think about it much aside from this quote. So in the end, um, I believe his efforts with Aegon will fail. Uh, when what you believe in is built on a false foundation, can it really endure? He states that one of his primary motivators for achieving his goals is to still the bells that rang so loudly in his dreams whenever he closed his eyes to sleep. Uh, but are those bells ringing for him? And are they going to stop with only at his death? 
you know, I, I, I just, I can't see this going too much further. Maybe Varys and Illyrio decide they don't need him anymore and get rid of him. Maybe he's killed by Danny or the Lannisters, or maybe even Stannis if the two could somehow inexplicably meet despite being on opposite ends of the com- continent. I know it's not likely, but it would be so cool if they did. Uh, regardless, in the end, uh, I think John Connington will love too hard, he'll dare too much, and he will overreach trying to grasp a star that unfortunately isn't really there anymore. Yeah. I think you've raised a great point about vengeance. Uh, ending the usurper's line dovetails very nicely with Dorne's quest for vengeance against Tywin's line in the persons of Tommen and Marcella and even Cersei. So, I mean, could his primary goal of seating Aegon on the throne somehow get redirected if an alliance with Dorne shifts the focus to vengeance? Uh, would could he perhaps lose his way amongst a tangle of these threads of the need for vengeance, especially if, as I mentioned, he comes to believe that he's been criminally deceived by Varys and Illyrio? Where does it end? Uh, in spite of the fact that he hasn't thought very explicitly about the vengeance piece of his goals, I don't doubt that George is going to explore that theme at some point. And with their probable missteps around the issue of Daenerys, like underestimating her and her willingness to share or simply give up her own claim, something a possible misogynist like Connington is likely, in my opinion, to get on board with. I don't see the seating Rhaegar's son on the throne part happening, at least not happening in a way that sticks. Uh, He has taken back his home and his name. I mean, his He's back, uh, back. John Connington's back, right? <laughs> but uh, this name is now tarnished by, or it will be, by what he's brought back with him. He's brought back more war. He's brought the Golden Company, who were ravaging the Stormlands um, in spite of his his best efforts to keep them from doing so. Uh, they need forage and, and other things. Uh, he's brought Golden, uh, I mean, he's brought uh, Grayscale and... He's brought an imposter. So, you know, take your pick. He's brought a lot of woe and misery with him. And I could see him just kind of sitting on the Griffin's seat at the end, left with nothing but Griffin's roost and his melancholy memories of Rhaegar. Yeah, I think I'm largely in agreement there. I don't think Connington is going to achieve his character goals if if you're talking about... seating Aegon on the throne or at least seating him there and you you know keep keeping him on the throne that's a whole different issue to me John is a tragedy waiting to happen Lady Gwyn was alluding to this and it's also something I've said about Doran so perhaps we can view those two longer long game players in parallel as characters who could perhaps ultimately lose everything rather than gain a win I see John leading a successful invasion for a time and perhaps will, as readers begin to wonder, yeah, he might make it to where he wants to be. Yet, I think, as we've seen with the Battle of the Bells, that John might be a nearly stroke almost character. Someone who gets very close to success, but who doesn't quite get there. That's what we'll see from the invasion, I think. I've mentioned the sense of absolution that John's seeking. 
you would describe that as his internal goal. However, he's hooking his hopes upon Varys, Illyrio and Aegon. For me, that is a huge mistake. And I wonder if he just believes anything he wants to believe at this stage. When your entire sense of self is being propped up by Varys and Illyrio scheming, you really do have some issues. His grayscale adds tension and makes us feel like we're in a race against time with him. But I don't think it will be the grayscale that kills him. He's going to be facing plenty of danger in the upcoming novels, perhaps even facing off against Daenerys and her dragons at some point. I don't think there's a happy ending for John Connington in this story. Ouch. Sorry, any Connington fans out there. <laughs> Jeez, yoke boy. Okay, guys, thank, thanks to everyone for tuning in. And Matt, thank you. Why don't you tell us about your podcast, Davos Fingers, where to find you and what you're up to? Yeah, thanks. Um, it's It's been a blast, both of you. Thank you so much. Uh, at the Davos Fingers podcast, Scat and I have finished for a while now our spoiler-free read-through of basically all the published A Song of Ice and Fire works. And so you can go back and listen to those back episodes if you'd like to do a reread without actually reading uh, or you can read along with our podcast episodes. Uh, we're now in the midst of what we call the Meet the Kalisar series, where we bring on a special guest from the fandom every episode, and we discuss their favorite A Song of Ice and Fire chapter, and we just learn more about them. It's This has been more rewarding than I ever could have imagined, We learning about and from these members of the fandom family who may not be prolific content creators, but I found are just as passionate about A Song of Ice and Fire as anybody else. Um, so check us out on with those Meet the Kalisar episodes. Over on Patreon, we're releasing additional monthly episodes where we cover everything from movie reviews, which we call Films Get Fingered. Uh, we are doing a read-through of Grant Piercy's I Am Mercury book series. That's um, Grant is at Heathen King on Twitter, and he's a fantastic writer. Uh, and we're covering his book over on Patreon, book series, excuse me. We're also doing What If Episodes, where we take a famous event in A Song of Ice and Fire, change a little detail, and reimagine how it would have turned out with that detail changed. We just put out one about if Rob had survived the Red Wedding, how things would be different in Westeros. Um, you can find our Patreon over at uh, patreon.com slash Fingers. And uh, we're on Twitter, at Davos Fingers. You can find our podcasts pretty much wherever you consume your podcasts. And we'd love to have you along for the ride. So thanks again, Yoke Boy and Lady Gwen, for having me. Uh, my friendship with both of you is sincerely, not even kidding, one of the things I treasure most about this fandom. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for being here. We treasure you as well. So we really appreciate it. What's uh, next for us is we will be back soon with uh, live streams to accompany our episode on the reach. So you can see our, our current Winds of Winter Primer episode number seven. It's all about the reach. goes into Sam and uh, Aaron and Euron Greyjoy. So if you haven't checked that out, uh, please do. In the meantime, two weeks from now, we're going to be participating in virtual Ice and Fire Con. So uh, check that out uh, two weekends from now on the Ice of Fire Con YouTube channel. 
Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, thanks to everyone in the future who's listening to the pre-recorded video or the podcast version. Don't forget to like and subscribe. We love y'all. Yeah, thanks to all of you for support of the live stream so far. We're having a great time. And I hope you can tell that. There will be more. And a special shout out to all of our mods who do such a great job on Discord and in the chat room here. Thanks to each and every one of our patrons who continue to support us. And if you want to support us as a patron, check out our campaign on patreon.com. And if you sign up, you get all manner of incentives. It's a sort of tiered reward system. So check that out. You can get shout outs, early releases and more. And yeah, guys, hope you have a great weekend. And thanks so much for spending your Saturday with us. Bye, everybody. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.